This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Right before we went to the break, there was a question about the relationship of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Essentially, how, how does the covenant of works fit into this larger covenant of grace scheme? And on, on one level, it's, it's kind of a, uh, you know, to be perfectly frank, it's, it's a difficult question to answer. It's uh, something that has been raised uh, by people who, uh, it has been raised by many people before. Um, and I think that the, the, the best answer we can get is that on the one, one hand, to, to affirm that the covenant of works is a distinct covenant, that it, uh, it doesn't fit into the covenant of grace, so to speak. It is a distinct covenantal economy um, that, in essence, in history, is running alongside the covenant of grace. Uh, all men are born, I guess unless you think of like a case of like a Jeremiah who was redeemed in the womb, you know, that you know, it's uh, men are born in their sin. They're born under the covenant of works, and if they're of the elect, they are ushered into the covenant of grace um, at their appointed time. So you know, they're, they're in that sense, they're running alongside each other throughout history. Uh, men find either condemnation under the covenant of works or redemption under the covenant of grace. So they are distinct covenants that in, in a sense run alongside each other throughout history. Um, but then the, beyond that, if, you know, given this is kind of what gave rise to the question, I believe, given that this is founded in eternity, what place does this have? Is that since we're... Um, well, I think that the, the covenant of works in the, the overall scheme of covenant theology as we find it in the scriptures, uh, the, the covenant of works establishes the necessity of perfect obedience. It shows us the necessity of perfect obedience uh, with obedience being understood as essentially conformity to the nature of God, uh, conforming, or a conformity to how He reveals Himself. It shows us the necessity of that perfect obedience and it also shows us man's complete need of a substitute or a representative to provide that conformity, that obedience for, uh, on his behalf. Um, you know, we, on the one hand, it shows us the necessity of perfect obedience. It shows us, in a sense, the necessity of Christ's work in the uh, Council of Peace. Remember I said before the break how this, in some sense, the covenant of works is a sort of transcription of what Christ does in the Council of Peace. Uh, sometimes older theologians would talk about the covenant of works being a scaffolding that was reared up, that when it was taken down, showed us the edifice of Christ's work within the covenant of grace. Um, which I think it's, you know, it's a, a true uh, 
that's certainly true. Uh, we see very clearly in the covenant of works in history what we can't see in eternity here. Um, but it's a, a reflection of it. So it, it shows us the necessity of Christ's work on behalf of his people uh, within the covenant of grace. And it also shows us how necessary that is for us. Um, we'll get to this. Might be. Yeah. No, well, if, if you. You know, I think that um, that's what it, what it comes to, that it shows us the, the necessity of Christ's work and our need of it, and that ends up displaying both his righteousness, his justice, his mercy. It, it essentially disp- displays the enormity of what God is doing in the covenant of grace. Um, it shows us the obedience that Christ renders. It shows us our need of that, I mean, in a sense, and we'll get to this when we get to Genesis 3.15, that the, the, the sin of Adam in the garden really is pretty inexplicable. I mean, he had essentially no, entice, no, no reason to sin, every reason not to sin. And what we see when we really consider the covenant of works is that eternal fellowship with God requires an obedience of which mankind, even in his innocence, is incapable. Um, even in his perfect created state, mankind is incapable of rendering what is needed to be in eternal fellowship with God. And that's brought into very clear relief in the covenant of works. Uh, so we're, in the covenant of works, we're seeing um, the necessity of, what, of Christ's work, uh, not only because of it being a central component or a necessary component of fellowship with God, but also because we're unable to render it under the curse of the covenant of works, we're then additionally placed under the guilt of our own sin. Um, it, it really amplifies uh, the grace and the justice and the power of God as it runs alongside the covenant of grace. Um, now, of course, um, that you still have the question remaining of you know, all, that, all that being so, you know, certainly it highlights those things, but why did God ordain it then? I mean, why, what's, um, why is it there, I suppose? Uh, and I think, um, I hope you won't take this as a, an avoidance of the question, but I think then you start to get into the Deuteronomy 29-29 distinction between what's given to us and what's not. And I think that you know, in the scriptures, all of, all of this is clearly held forth and taught but we're never told, with, I don't think with any clarity, why, um, you know, why this fits alongside that in the way that it does. So I think that you can answer the, the question to a certain point. You can say that you know, the covenant of works is a distinct covenant. It's not some fabrication. And its function within God's overall work um, is to highlight his grace and his justice and his power in here 
And also, when we think about it, this, what goes on in the covenant of grace, in a sense, in a sense, demands the covenant of works. I mean, if there's no sin, there's no need for redemption. There's no need for a, what goes on in the covenant of grace. And so they, they, they work together. Uh, the covenant of works highlights the grace of God and the covenant of grace. You can answer that far, but to answer beyond that as to the purpose in God's ordaining of a covenant that was essentially going to bring judgment, um, I don't think the scriptures give us an answer. I don't know if that, am I at all? I think that in, um, in, in preaching the covenant of works, the, uh, I think that kind of what I was trying to say there is what largely comes out in preaching the covenant of works. It, it really uh, presses upon us the, the enormous demands that are placed on humanity. I mean, it's no light thing to be uh, found righteous in God's sight. You know, mankind was created without sin and was incapable of doing it. You know, there's a uh, the bar is set essentially impossibly high, and we're further you know, under the guilt of sin. I mean, it brings out um, really our, our need, our deep need of a representative, um, and it um, you know, shows the well. Won't get into all that, but but yeah, but I think you you don't you certainly don't want to present Adam as somebody who was trotted out to just to fail because certainly he, you know, that, that, that's a distortion of the biblical picture Well, it, it kind of it, it depends on how you how you're thinking of. If, if you're looking at the way they flow together, in a sense, then I think it's probably most helpful to put the covenant of works with the rest of them in the way that redemption has moved. But monocovenantalism goes a step further and says that all of them fall under uh, the same sort of gracious covenant, and so they would say that there's really no difference in how God is relating to man in the covenant of works and in the covenant of grace. Um, that, it's, it's the, that they're both equally gracious covenants. And so then what you end up, what ends up happening is that the, the demerit of sin essentially disappears. You know, there's no, you know, the, the way that God related to Adam in his innocence is really no different than the way he relates to us in our sin. Um, you, so it, it leads to... Uh, a lot of a lot of problems simply because it sees both covenants as
function on, on this, the same, exactly the same kind of grace. Yeah, and I, I can see that problem. So yeah. I wanted to make sure you could see the kind of grace, which they may not fall into that. But then how we kind of understand all the gradations, that's kind of what it's pulling us forward. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. You, you kind of, if you're thinking, certainly the way they, they move in history, I mean, you have to, you know, what is going on over here with the various covenants, certainly what Christ did, and this has to be up here somewhere. I mean, it, it's, yeah. that's what he's taken care of. So, I mean, it ha- they, ha- they, they do all fit together in some senses. It's just monocovenantalism as a system um, yeah. goes further. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Um, well, we'll keep keep moving along with the general uh, overview of the covenant of grace. Um, and before the before chapel, we you know, said how you know, the covenant of grace has these two uh, components: uh, the council of peace, and then the actual historical outworking of that council of peace. And um, while both of those components are part of the same covenant, there are also certainly differences between the two. There, you know, there are differences between the Council of Peace and the actual historical outworking of it. Uh, primarily, the two parts of the covenant of grace differ in how they bestow covenantal blessing, you know, how the, the blessings of the covenant um, are granted within each of the two parts of the covenant of grace. Um, now, when, we, when you refer to the blessings of the covenant of grace, what I have in mind is essentially everything that moves, that's required to move somebody from being a sinner to being a redeemed sinner. You know, so you have um, you know, justification, sanctification, glorification, but all, all, of, all of the blessings of what uh, Christ accomplishes for his people, uh, those are the blessings of the covenant of grace. And one of the primary differences between the Council of Peace and the historical outworking is the way in which these blessings are bestowed. Um, In the Council of Peace, all of these blessings are bestowed in accordance with merit. You know, Christ wins righteousness by keeping the law. Uh, He wins uh, the forgiveness of sins by His atoning death. Um, Christ fully merits all of the blessings uh, that he receives. So in that sense, what goes on here in the Council of Peace is very much like a strict, proper sort of covenant. Um, Like we talked about last hour, Christ renders obedience, he receives reward. There's that strict sort of covenantal relationship, uh, very contractual in flavor. And... Because of that, because of that way in which uh, blessing is given in strict accordance with merit, you can refer to this, this part, this council of peace, as being the, the covenantal administration of the covenant of grace. Not to introduce further confusing terms, but um, all, of the, all of the blessings of the covenant are given in accordance with merit, just as in a strict, proper covenant. You, know, you render obedience, I give you righteousness. Uh, that that's the way that blessing is bestowed in this part of the covenant. Whereas, in this part of the covenant, 
the blessings of the covenant, righteousness, eternal life, they are given without reference to merit. Uh, Christ has won all the blessings of the covenant. He's won eternal life. And over here, He freely gives it without regard to merit. In fact, He gives it in spite of demerit. Uh, It's given freely and without um, meritorious qualification. And in that way, it's somewhat like a testament. If you all remember, first or second week, we talked about how there's some discussion about, uh, specifically around the word diatheke, whether it's a covenant or a testament. Um, In this part of the covenant of grace, it's very much like a testament. Uh, Christ has, he possesses the blessings of the covenant and he freely gives them to his people. Uh, So it's almost as if this part of the covenant works like a covenant and this part works like a testament. Here Christ explicitly merits and wins what he receives and here he freely gives it to the elect without them really earning any of it. Does that make sense? You see the distinction I'm making there? Um... Now, in that, in that respect, I think that the, um, this kind of expansive view of the covenant of grace, you know, having it include, uh, or realizing that it includes both a council of peace and the historical outworking of that council of peace, um, it, I think, brings out the richness of the biblical language for covenant. And likewise, the biblical language for covenant highlights the richness of this particular view. Like I say, you know, diatheke in the Greek, you know, there's this, that constant argument about whether it's a covenant or a testament. Uh, as you read through Robertson, he discusses it at a pretty significant length a couple of different times. But you know, the, the fact of the matter is, diatheke, the New Testament language for covenant, has shades of both meanings. It has shades of covenant and it has shades of testament. Uh, you can almost say that it has both meanings at the same time. It's a very complex term. Um, I don't know if y'all remember, you don't necessarily expect that you do, but when we were talking about uh, diatheke and exactly how to understand that Greek term, I quoted a uh, 17th century theologian named Francis Turretin. Y'all maybe have heard of Turretin before this class, and I've referred to him a couple times. Um, but Turretin explained... Uh, the very nuanced meaning of diatheke this way. Uh, like I said, I quoted this first couple of lectures, but he said that diatheke peculiarly denotes a testamentary disposition with a federal agreement. In other words, it's a covenantal agreement that undergirds a testamentary disposition of the blessings. It's a, a kind of a, a contract or a covenantal agreement that undergirds the free giving of what has been obtained. And that is the view of the covenant of grace that emerges when you come to terms with this expansive nature of it. It is simultaneously a covenant. It's meritor- the blessings of the covenant are meritoriously earned by Christ, but that contractual agreement is undergirding and making possible a testamentary giving of the blessings to the elect. It's both, it's kind of simultaneously both a proper covenant and a testament. 
Is that, you see, you see that, does that make sense? A couple of confused looks. It, um, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you take into account the full scope of the covenant of grace, you kind of the, some of the disagreements and squabbles about covenant or testament, you realize that they're, in the end, somewhat pointless because the covenant of grace is both a covenant, you know, a proper covenant here with terms and conditions that are met and a reward given because of that obedience. And it's also, at the same time, a testament. Christ obtains the blessings of the covenant. He obtains eternal life in the council of peace because of his obedience. And then he freely gives them to his elect in the um, actual historical outworking of the covenant. So the covenant of grace is simultaneously a merit-based covenant and a testament that has no regard to merit. Depends on which, kind of which part of it you're taking into view. Um, you know, it's almost as if you know, the, the term diatheke, because it, can, because it does have shades of the meaning of covenant and shades of the meaning of testament, is taken as being an ambiguous term. You know, does it mean covenant or does it mean testament? We don't know. What does it mean in this passage? What does it mean in that passage? And I think, but I think when you see the, the larger picture of the covenant of grace, you realize that diatheke is not ambiguous, it's complex. And I think there's a difference between being ambiguous and being complex. Um, it's not unclear, but rather it is telling us about something that has a depth of complexity to it. A divine covenant that, on the one hand, <coughs> rewards obedience, and on the other hand, freely gives a reward in spite of the absolute absence of obedience. Yeah, um, well, I think there, there are two ways in which you could talk about this part in testamentary language. Um, on the one hand, you, one of the distinctions between a covenant and a testament is that, you know, that a covenant does, essentially you have to earn what you get in a covenant, whereas in a testament, the person receiving benefit doesn't necessarily earn it. You don't earn an inheritance from somebody who dies. They just give it to you. And so on the one hand, that distinction is brought out because whereas Christ earns what he gets here, we don't earn what we get here. It's freely given to us. And then the, the second part of testament to which you refer is that the testa a testament needs the death of the testator. Um, and that, that certainly could be applied here as well because it's Christ's, uh, the, the completion of Christ's active and passive obedience in his death is what then you know, completes his part of the covenant or part of the council of peace, so to speak, and then sec finally secures the blessings that are given to his people. So th this is 
this part is testamentary in both senses. It's freely given, and it's a giving that requires the death of Christ under the curse of the covenant of works. Does that get at what you're asking? Yeah, yeah it, it, it does start to get into that. Um, I think, is, is it in Robertson that that was, if I'm recalling correctly? Yeah, <laughs> I can understand. Um, yeah, the, 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 there is a debate you know, is, um, about you know, Christ's language there. When he's, is this the, <coughs> when he says that, you know, that this cup is the new diatheke in my blood, is he saying that it's a, um, you know, is his death, a covenantal death, inaugurating, or is it a testamentary death? Um, essentially, kind of passing it on. And I think that um, that's one one of the places where this larger view, I think, brings clarity, because you can say you, when Christ says that His death um, is the new diatheke, He's simultaneously saying it's a covenantal death. Um, you, it is a death that he's rendering in obedience to the will of the Father. Um, it, it's not occurring outside of covenantal parameters. It's the obedience that has been required uh, in the Council of Peace. It's the obedience that makes him the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Um, it's a covenantal death in that way. But at the same time, and to an equal extent, it's a testamentary death because it's on the cross that he finishes the work of redemption and cries out, it is finished. And therefore, um, you can say, in a sense, finally obtains the blessings of the covenant that he then pours out on his people. And so, you know, there's, you know, people get into, um, well, I guess it's a small segment of people who do, but people can get into protracted discussions about whether the death of Christ is a covenantal death or a testamentary death. And I think that, essentially, if, if you take... If you take this out and make it just a council or a covenant of redemption, and all you have in the covenant of grace is this, then that it is a confusing issue. I mean, is is Christ dying um, to you know because of a covenant, or not? You know, not really, because he's just giving um, dying to give redemption to his people, but he's also rendering obedience to some. It, it can become quite confusing. Whereas if you Realize that the covenant of grace is all of this, and you're asked the question, is Christ's death a covenantal death or a testamentary death? You can say, yes, because it's actually both. He's fulfilling the covenant. It's a covenantal death, and he's also doing that in order that he might dispense the blessings freely in a testament. Like I said, I think it shows that all the confusion around diatheke um, is because essentially we're taking the complexity of diatheke and trying to make it, we read it as being ambiguous instead of just complex. Was that suitably ambiguous and complex where y'all don't even know what to ask now? <laughs> um, 
like I say, th- 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 this part of it can be a little bit hard to get your, get your head around. Um, if you have you know, if questions come to you later, you know, please do call me or email me or whatever. Um, but ho- and also, hopefully, as we, you know, we're going to be going through each of the historical outworkings of the covenant, and hopefully then it will become a little bit more clear as well. Um, but anyway, that's the, the general structure of the covenant of grace. Uh, you know, uh, a, this one covenant that includes the Council of Peace and the historical outworking of it. So now we'll finally get to those three issues that I said we were going to talk about uh, <laughs> pertaining to the covenant of grace. And the, the first of those, the one that comes up uh, a lot as you read in covenant theology, is the question of the parties to the covenant of grace. Um, essentially, the covenant of grace is a covenant between whom? You know, the covenant of works was a covenant between Adam and God. They were the parties to the covenant. But who are the parties to the covenant of grace? That's a, a question that oftentimes comes up. And normally, you get one of two options being proposed. On the one hand, some people say that the covenant of grace is a covenant made between God and the elect, or Christ and the elect, depending on who is writing. Um, but essentially, the, the covenant of grace is a covenant between God and man. That's one of the views. Uh, the other view that you most often see is that the covenant of grace is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. Now, of course, God the Holy Spirit is involved as well, but the particular focus of this issue is on the, the part between uh, the Father and the Son. Um, in, that partic- in that particular understanding, the elect, or man, you know, mankind, the elect, or the elect within mankind, uh, the elect are seen as being parties to the covenant of grace only insofar as they are in Christ. Um, the covenant is made between God the Father and Christ along with all of the elect who are in Christ. Um, so you have, you know, the two options are either the covenant of grace is between God and the elect or that the covenant of grace is made between God the Father and Christ along with all of the elect in Him. Now, um, that might seem like a rather obscure question, um, one that is um, somewhat unnecessary, uh, but it, as you, as you um, get more and more into covenant theology, it comes to have enormous implications, really, uh, particularly in regard to the conditionality of the covenant of grace. If, on the one hand, if the covenant of grace is a covenant between God and man, then there's a definite category created wherein mankind has to do something to win the grace of the covenant of grace. Um, if he's a party to it, he has some part to play in it. That's a, a danger to which that view can lead. Uh, likewise, the other view, uh, if, if man isn't a proper party to the covenant of grace, if it's just between the Father and Christ, um, then it, views can start to drift so that mankind is so exterior to the covenant that there's a sort of antinomianism that emerges. I mean, he's essentially a helpless third party that doesn't really have any 
uh, anything to do with the covenant anyway. You know, so it can, you know, these, the, the way that this particular question is answered can have uh, some, on, on either side, can have dangerous implications. But if you, you know, as long as you avoid the, the caricatures and the errors uh, that it can run into, uh, I think it's most biblically accurate to say that the, the parties to the covenant of grace are God the Father and Jesus Christ, with all of the elect being in Christ. Um, the elect are not in the covenant of grace personally. They're in the covenant of grace uh, covenantally or representatively. They're in the covenant in Christ, if that makes sense. Uh, the covenant itself, you know, back here, is made between the Father and the Son. You know, again, just we're leaving the Spirit out of the discussion at this point. Uh, the covenant is between the Father and the Son, and the elect are in it only insofar as they are in Christ. Um, now, when you look at the, um, the standards uh, accepted by most Reformed churches, that is the view of the covenant of grace that's given. Um, for instance, in the Westminster Standards, uh, the standards affirm that the parties to the covenant of grace are God the Father and God the Son. Uh, in question number 31 of the larger catechism, uh, the catechism asks, with whom was the covenant of grace made? So, you know, since who are the parties to the covenant? And the answer to question 31 is, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. So the, the Westminster Standards clearly hold that the parties to the covenant of grace are God the Father and God the Son, and the elect are in the covenant only insofar as they are in Christ as their head. And in the, the language that the larger catechism uses, it points really to one of the strands of biblical teaching that most clearly shows that the covenant of grace was made with Christ rather than with man. Um, if you recall there in the answer to question 31, uh, the catechism had said that the covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam. Now, as we've mentioned a couple times already, you know, there are those two places in the New Testament where a parallel is drawn between Adam's federal headship and the covenant of works and Christ's federal headship in the covenant of grace, uh, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. And in both of those places, you know, we've said this several times already, in both those places, the underlying rationale of Paul's argument is that just as Adam's disobedience brought curse on all of his posterity, everyone who he was representing in the covenant, so Christ's obedience brings blessing on everyone he was representing in the covenant. The, the scriptures there uh, are placing Adam and Christ in parallel as federal heads who operate as parties to a covenant and based upon their performance, essentially, uh, either blessing or cursing passes on to those who they represent. And so the, the scriptures, um, I think, you know, particularly in those two places, clearly uh, give us a picture of the covenant of grace being made between God the Father and Christ with the elect being in Christ. Um, 
that uh, that's the the picture that the scriptures give us. In other um, you know, other passages that indicate the same thing, but it seems to me that the the Adam Christ parallel uh, is probably the the clearest and the most helpful. Um, um, that's probably enough about the parties to the covenant. Is all that fairly clear? Do y'all see the parties to the covenant? The, 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 do, you get, do you get a, at least a sense of this? And it'll become clearer too, but do you get a, at least a sense at this point for why that's important? All right, well, that's uh, the, the parties to the covenant. Um, covenant of grace being made between God the Father and Christ. Uh, the, the second issue that we need to look at quickly is the question of the conditionality of the covenant of grace. Uh, essentially, is the covenant of grace conditional or is it unconditional? You know, are, are the blessings of the covenant earned in any sense or are they uh, freely given? Um, is there any condition that has to be performed or, all the, or, or are the blessings given unconditionally? As you're probably used to hearing me saying it by now, uh, the answer to that question requires a little bit of nuance. Um, and that's based on the, this large view of the covenant of grace. Um, in effect, you have to say that the covenant of grace is both conditional and unconditional. Uh, in the council of peace, with regard to Christ as the head of the, le- of the elect, Christ as a party to the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace is most certainly conditional. Uh, Christ had to atone for the sins of his people. He had to win a legal righteousness that was given to them. Uh, there were conditions that were placed upon Christ and he had to perform these conditions before the blessings of the covenant were given to him. Uh, we saw that last hour even uh, when we looked at uh, the idea of Christ winning a reward by his obedience. Uh, you also see it in Romans 5.18. You see it in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Um, in a very important sense, the covenant of grace is conditional. Uh, Christ won and earned the blessings of the covenant. But at the same time, in the historical outworking of the covenant, in the, the giving of those blessings to the elect, the covenant of grace is unconditional. Christ freely gives the blessings of the covenant to His people. They don't earn it. They don't merit it. Uh, the elect don't perform any conditions that give them some sort of a meritorious claim uh, to the covenant. Christ freely gives, as a testament, the blessings of the covenant to His people. Uh, he gives it, in fact, in spite of their undeservingness, to make up a word. Um, All of it is strictly of promise. So the covenant of grace is simultaneously conditional and unconditional. Uh, It's somewhat of an inaccurate question uh, to ask whether it is either conditional or unconditional. It's actually both. Now, but that being said, there is an important caveat, I suppose you could say, that needs to be made. Um, through the historical outworking of the Council of Peace, uh, there is a certain form, a very specific form, 
of conditionality within this part of the covenant. A a very specific form of conditionality. Um, Back to Francis Turretin. Uh, Turretin makes what I I think, hopefully all will agree, uh, what I think is a helpful distinction between what he calls antecedent conditions and consequent conditions. Now basically what, what he's getting at is that there are some kinds of uh, conditions that are performed and by their performance necessarily compel a reward. You perform a condition and you get a reward. Uh, those are what he calls antecedent conditions. You know, an antecedent is something that comes before something else. These are conditions that you perform and because you perform them, you obtain a reward. That would be like what Christ does uh, in the Council of Peace. There's another kind of condition um, that are more of a means to an end. Um, those are what Turretin calls uh, consequent conditions. Um, these are essentially steps that are followed to achieve a guaranteed end. Um, kind of the, uh, the following of a logical process, you might say. Um, they don't, um, these are conditions that they don't find their purpose in actually procuring something. They find their purpose in bringing to pass something that has already been procured. Um, does that sort of a distinction make sense between the two sorts of conditions? Uh, the the um, consequent conditions, they don't find their meaning in actually procuring something. Uh, they find their purpose in um, essentially bringing about something that's already been procured. Um, kind of steps in a, a process. Uh, they, um, they, they bring to pass what has already been procured. Yeah, that 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 sort of that sort of thing. Um, so with, with that with that sort of distinction, then you can say. I mean, also you're getting to very fine distinctions. But if if you take that distinction in in, in hand, then you then you, you would say that in this historical outworking of the covenant, there are consequent conditions. Uh, what God does here in the historical outworking of the covenant of grace, uh, he does do in a sort of um, orderly fashion, you might say. Uh, Specifically, what I'm getting at with that is that within this historical outworking of the covenant, the blessings of the covenant always are given only to those who have faith. Uh, Faith is the, the instrument through which the blessings of the covenant are received. Uh, if, you, if you just flat out blanketly say that this part of the covenant of grace is unconditional, you obviously then can run into error of the error of even a, a universalism. You know, if there's no condition placed on it, then who falls outside of the covenant? You know, the, there, there is uh, this sort of uh, subsequent conditionality of faith. Uh, the, the blessings of the covenant are given only to those who have faith. Uh, and you know, there, 
you know, scores of passages in the scriptures that attest to that. You know, John 3.16, everybody, everybody knows, uh, you know, clearly speaks of uh, faith being the instrument through which um, God brings redemption. Uh, in John 3.36, uh, it's put, I think, even more strikingly there. In John 3.36, Christ says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Uh, in Romans 10.9, says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, very, very clearly, you know, there's no need to trot out a whole bunch of different passages, uh, very clearly the blessings of the covenant of grace are not given to those who don't have faith. It's given to those who have faith. So there is this sort of, very specific sort of conditionality. Um, of course, faith doesn't win salvation. It doesn't earn salvation. God himself gives faith. Uh, it's, it's a sort of instrument um, in that sense. It seems to me that's probably most clearly spelled out in Ephesians 2, Verse 8, in Ephesians 2, 8, uh, where Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so on the one hand, you have this sort of conditionality. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, it's through this instrument of faith. But at the same time, he goes on to say that even that faith is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So even within this part of the covenant, there is both unconditionality and conditionality. Um, there's the unconditionality of you know, the fact that no one earns what they receive, but there is the orderly conditionality, so to speak, of the redemption that God, that Christ has won coming only to those who have faith, having been given that faith also uh, by God. So, you know, to answer, you know, people all the time will ask whether the covenant of grace is conditional or unconditional. And a lot of times um, that question can be used to drive a, a wedge, essentially, between different, some of these different administrations of the covenant. Um, we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, Meredith Klein's view and, you know, in, uh, in some way, th th this question factors in a little bit there you know, as far as, you know, he, he would say that the covenant with Abraham is unconditional. God just, you know, the, the royal grant treaty that we talked about, God just gives him a blessing, whereas the covenant with Moses is more the suzerainty treaty uh, because there's um, something expected from uh, the Israelites in obedience to the law. Um, therefore, it's a conditional covenant. And so there's this distinction made between conditional covenants and unconditional covenants, and unconditional covenants are put in the covenant of grace, and conditional covenants are taken out of the covenant of grace. Um, but to, to start making those sorts of distinctions is to really truncate the view of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is both conditional and unconditional. And even over here, even where it is unconditional, there's a certain, certain kind of conditionality. Faith is required 
It's, it's given by God, but it's also required by God as the, the way in which he brings his sovereign redemption. Um, any questions on that? There are, well, there are conditions, uh, or there are commands given to Moses. Um, certainly, you know, uh, meant you know to to draw God's people to Christ, uh, meant to display God's righteousness. Well, on the one hand, you know, to display God's righteousness and to display it in such a way that His people see their need of someone to atone for their sin and give them the righteousness that they themselves can't earn. But then again, you, but it's not as if... You know, certainly that sort of uh, command assumes its greatest prominence in the covenant with Moses, um, specifically through the law. But it's not absent anywhere else. Um, you know, Abraham is given commands as well. David's given commands. I mean, it's not as if the only commands, the only conditions, if you want to call them conditions, over here are all given to Moses and not to anyone else. You know, there, you, you, um, you get that, uh, there, there are commands throughout, all of them with the same purpose of revealing the grandeur of God and his righteousness, and by that revelation, showing man both his need of atonement and his need for a righteousness given to him. So I, I don't at all mean to imply that there's no command given to Moses. But I, I do think that it's an oversimplification of all of the other historical covenants to say that he's the only one who's given them, because everybody is. Which we'll get to as we go through the, each of them individually. Anything else? Um, I'm gonna, well, we'll go about another five minutes. I'll keep moving. Um, now, the, the third thing that we need to talk about uh, before we actually get into the specific covenants uh, is the, uh, the, the issue of the unity of the covenant of grace. Um, and that, you know, essentially through all of the different covenantal administrations, you know, through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, uh, David, through all of them were seen one unified covenant of grace at work. Um, that's uh, that's the, the, the unity of the covenant of grace. Um, uh, i to skip over some of this. Um, Now, uh, for, for the most part, we'll, we'll get at this unity of the covenant of grace as we go through each of, you know, each of the individual covenants. We'll see how they uh, are at stand in unity with what has come before and what follows after. Uh, but uh, just generally speaking, there are two overall considerations that show us the unity of the one covenant of grace. Uh, the first of those is the uh, the abiding presence of the Emmanuel principle, as it's often called. 
Uh, I think we mentioned this the first or second week of class. Um, and the Emmanuel principle is that statement by God, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Um, if you remember we said at the, back at the first class that uh, God's eternal purpose, the purpose that He's pursuing through His covenant, uh, is the purpose to have a people who dwell with Him in eternal glory. And that purpose is articulated in the Emmanuel Principle, uh, that God will be God to the, His people, and they will be His people. Um, they'll be with Him as His people. And that Emmanuel Principle, that, that kind of succinct expression of God's covenantal purpose, is articulated as the goal of each of the various historical uh, covenantal administrations. Uh, God declares that through whatever covenant is being considered, uh, that He is being God to His people and they are being His people. Uh, you first find it in Genesis 17:7, God declares it to Abraham. Uh, it's reiterated to Moses prior to the Exodus in Exodus 3:15. It's declared to Israel. Uh, at Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 2. Uh, it's spoken in the context of the Davidic covenant. Um, in Psalm, you get it in Psalm 2, 1 through 8. Uh, it's confirmed after the exile in Ezekiel 36, 28. Uh, it's reiterated in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, and Revelation 21, 3. You know, again and again, as you move through the various administrations of the covenant of grace, this Emmanuel principle. Uh, is reiterated as being the purpose that God is pursuing in His covenant. Um, there's this, this unity of purpose running throughout the covenant of grace. It's a, it's a unified covenant. Um, so that's uh, one of the uh, overarching considerations that shows the unity of all of uh, these various covenants. Throughout all of them, God has the same purpose um, expressed in the Emmanuel principle. And um, I might better stop there before I get into that next little point. I don't want to keep you all past the hour. Um, we'll, next time we'll start back with the, the last just couple minutes about the unity of the covenant of grace, then we'll move into um, the actual covenants. Um, like I, said, I hope all this introductory sort of stuff isn't proven to be more confusing than helpful. Uh, but when we get into the discussions of the particular covenants, um, hopefully then, if, if you don't now, hopefully you'll then see why all this is relevant. <laughs> um, but are, are there any questions about anything? It is. Um, well, they're considered, the elect are being considered as in Christ. Uh, it's, in, in, in the 
Council of Peace, you know, part of that council is the father choosing the elect and giving them to the son. So it, kind of in the, the striking of the covenant, so to speak, they are in view as a group that's being created by that covenant and therefore they're in Christ as they're created in the, council, in the covenant. Uh, um, you know, like in the John 17, Christ talks about you know, those whom you have given to me um, as you know, being the ones for whom he prays. And you, you get the idea of you know, in, in that covenant, precisely as they're being given to the Son, he's acting on their behalf. So it's not as if there's, they're a prior entity that's already been created and defined that then come in in him. But rather it's uh, you know, the, the intricacies of the Council of Peace are creating them and making them a party um, in Christ as long as he agrees to the covenant, which he obviously does. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 hard because you, you know, being finite men, we have to think in ther- terms of time. But you know, this is happening essentially outside of time, um, so it, it's hard to put it into a strict temporal sort of order. But you know, I think maybe one helpful way to think about it is that um, in, in all of in all of these covenants over here, you know, with these various men. Obviously, there's a, a huge disparity between God and Abraham. And so God's able to tell Abraham, essentially just tell him what, what the agreement is. Abraham doesn't have a seat at the bargaining table. Whereas here, you know, there, there is the, you know, the numerical identity of essence between the, the three persons of the Trinity. They're all equal in power and glory. And so it's not as if the Father decides, you know, this is the group of people I'm going to give to you and you have to do this to the Son but rather it's all of them together um, being co-equal, deciding things simultaneously. So maybe, I don't know if it's helpful to think of it not necessarily in chronological terms, but in, um, in terms of their parity amongst the persons. I don't know if that is helpful at all. Anything else? All right, and just as a reminder, uh, we this class will actually not meet again until the 22nd. Next week, um, I have to be at a presbytery meeting, and the following week is y'all's break. So, two more, two two weeks off, and then we're back, and then we will go every week till the end of the semester. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.